Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. Today, we're talking about Bonneville, a 2006 road trip dramedy directed by Chris Rowley and starring Jessica Lange, Kathy Bates, and Joan Allen. Over Rotten Tomatoes, its tomato meter score is 40%, and the critics' consensus reads, the amazing cast of Bonneville is paired with a basic predictable script and lackluster direction. But as always here on Below the Line, we're not concerned about what the critics think. I personally worked on Bonneville as the key second assistant director, and it was honestly one of my favorite film experiences. We'll talk more about why that was, but first, my guests. Eric Pott, first AD on Bonneville and friend of the show. Welcome back to Below the Line. Hey, how are you doing, Skid? Thanks for having me. Eric, glad you're here. IMDb says you're known for chain reaction, snakes on a plane, Dragonfly and Cellular, if you were going to do a sequel to one of these and it was going to star our cast from Bonneville, which one would you pitch? Wow. First of all, I'd like to delete some of that from my resume, but in light of your question, uh, you know, you can't go wrong with snakes on a plane, you know, so how, how would we take that? Uh, I, think, I think that'd be a natural sequel on the way back from I, California. They're going to fly. Snake, no, it's snakes in a Bonneville, you know, you could get by with a lot less snakes. You could probably do it with one or two, you know, to get the ladies in there. I think that would be the whole, the whole show. I, you know, snakes on a Bonneville. Okay. That'll, that'll work. Thanks, Eric. Next, we're joined by Morgan Smith, who worked as the camera loader on Bonneville. Morgan, welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Now, Morgan, looking at your IMDb page, it says you're known for We Were Soldiers, Bruce Almighty, The Longest Yard, and a 2013 film called Jet Set, where your credit <laughs> just says crew. What's the story there? I mean, funny story about Jet Set. It, uh, it was a, 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 very, a very large movie, large budget, um, a lot of great people on it, but I don't know if anyone will ever see it because I was actually never, never worked on the movie. So you have a credit, maybe because your name is Morgan Smith, that somehow you've been attached as crew to a film you didn't actually work on. You, you know, Skid, I've got away with a lot of my life, life being um, kind of a bit of a ghost because I have no middle name. So if you look up how many Morgan Smiths there are in the world, there's a couple, a couple hundred thousand of us. So it makes it, makes it hard to track me down and hard to, hard to find a credit for. You know, it makes sense. And someday we are going to do a show about IDB and how they put their pages together. But in the <laughs> meantime, your resume on the site is a little sparse. Are you still working in film? Um, well, I, I actually ran a talent agency with my, with my dad that only did below the line for uh, the better part of 11 years. And, um, he, he recently passed away and I, I kind of stepped away from that business and, and, and now I'm in a, in a different realm entirely. I, I spent a long time in the film world and, and learned a lot and met a lot of great people, but just, uh, isn't something that I want to be involved in presently, but it's still a big part of my life. Well, condolences on the passing of your father. Uh, good luck uh, with, the, with the agency. We might talk more about that later in the show. And glad you're joining us today. Thank you. My final guest today is John Kilker, who is one of Bonneville's producers. John, welcome to Below the Line. Thanks, kid. John, INDB says that besides Bonneville, you're known for a couple of shorts and most recently, a film called The Paragon Cortex, which you produced, wrote, and directed. I'm not familiar with the movie, but it looks like you netted some awards on the festival circuit. What's the story there? Yeah, we, we did. It's a, it's a micro-budget film. Uh, it's about an agoraphobic attorney who has an accident and unlocks all these superpowers and uh, you know, then has to have the courage to go outside his apartment if he ever wants to use them. And uh, we, we won a few festivals and were nominated for Best Picture at every festival we went to. So it was a great experience. And actually, I just want to say real quick, um, 
Morgan, I'm sorry to hear about your father. Uh, he was a delight to work with on Bonneville. He was really straight up, honest, great man. So I'm sorry to hear. He was a, he was a great guy. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we dive into talking about the movie, let's address the elephant in the room. And that is that John, as a producer, is not technically below the line. So let's see if a good opportunity, given that's the name of the show, but we haven't really talked about it in the past, uh, to discuss what that term means for the benefit of our listeners. Well, you and I have spoken about this before, and I think even Eric and I have spoken about it. First of all, I, I hate the term. Because the term comes from the idea that the producer, the director, the writer, and the actors are the creative leads, and so they're the above the line. Um, now, there's a more practical reason as well. When you're a producer and you're negotiating uh, contracts with the various unions, you do your best to negotiate uh, the budget below the line to base the scale on. So it, it's using the above the line term as a way of kind of just separating out, saying we're going to remove them, and then you get better fees with the Teamsters, IOTC, et cetera. Um, but uh, so that's you know my basic perspective on it as a producer, but I think it's a bullshit term personally. You know, I'm going to jump in here and John, don't take offense at this for a second, no. but you know, it, it escapes my brain entirely that, you know, you're, we're producing when you were out there with us because, you know, all my fondest memories of that show is Skid, you guys are there, Kilker's on my right, you know, and we were just out there making the movie. And I was uh, looking through some pictures this morning, you know, and We'll, we'll talk at length here, but, it, you know, it was cold or it was hot. And every one of those, you know, John, you're right next to us, like schlumping, carrying stuff, running, craft service, whatever it was, you know, you were as below the line guy as anybody <laughs> out there. One of the In best the sense, compliments I've ever been given. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll take the it. sense that um, we call ourselves below the line, I don't think we say it um, – it is with a little bit of pride that that's where the work is getting done on a set. And I think a side point on this is that producer is one of the most difficult titles to actually explain what it does on a film, because unless you were there and watched the person on set, you don't know whether they were a working producer, which John, as I think Eric is alluding to, you definitely were, uh, or they just got a credit producer credit because they had the idea or they had, points on the script or unless you're actually there with the people that title alone doesn't tell you anything about their involvement in the final final product. I mean, I, I think that the below the line term, as far as being an identifier for people, a lot of people from not in the film industry, they've never even heard it before, but um, I mean, it, it does come with a lot of different caveats and there's way more profit participation now that happens with below the line characters like cinematographers and there ever has been before. I know back, way back in the day, because my, my, my dad was actually the first person to start a below the line agency. And there were things back in those times where I mean, he, when he first started using contracts for guys like Vilma Sigmund and John Alonzo and Lazo Kovac and uh, John Seal, Dean Semler, a bunch of different people, but he, he used a director's contract is what he based it off of. And so he got a lot of things kind of added into the mix, like having a cinematographer be put on a poster, have, um, I mean, a lot of different things with like not having to be double bunked with the key grip, which used to happen a lot. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things that have kind of broken through to give below the line people more respect. But um, I mean, I, I, I always I always found the below the line people generally the easiest to deal with. <laughs> um, it's just because you you're talking to them on a level about a, a creative set, that great, a real a real skill set they have that nobody else could really replicate, and it just kind of um, it, it just kind of gave them their own their own entity. 
So I've always thought below the line kind of had a lot of, a lot of respect attached to it because of who they were. And a lot of times they weren't really looking for the glory. That's some good insights, Morgan, um, as far as that difference there. And so, John, we, we welcome you with open arms to blow <laughs> <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you very much. much. For people that want video evidence of this, go get the Bonneville DVD and watch the behind the scenes. And you're going to see a scene. It's the middle of the night in the middle of the rainstorm. And you see two guys like schlumping a set crane up like a slippery hill. And those two guys are two of our producers. It's John and Bob Brown in pouring down rain, middle of the night, miserable co- conditions, you know, and you can't tell them apart from the grip. So God bless. <laughs> well, let's turn our full attention to Bonneville, but first a little more context. The movie is structured around a road trip from Idaho to California. And for most of the film, we were based out of Salt Lake City. Let's talk a little bit about that. All right, so the, the first answer is very simple. It is, is when you're producing an independent film, for those of you who don't know, and I know the three of you do, uh, one of the first things you look at is what are the tax incentives in a certain state? And is it a right to work state? because you want to be able to go non-union where you can, so right to work, and, and then you want to get as much of a tax incentive back from the state. And Utah has one of the best combinations of those two things. Then on top of that, uh, there's a ton of production that's done in and around Salt Lake. For example, around the time we shot Bonneville, all the Disney straight-to-DVD movies like High School Musical were being shot there. So there, the other thing is there's a lot of crew that is in Salt Lake or are in Salt Lake. So when you start to look at it from a producing standpoint, it's like, okay, all those elements are already there. And then Salt Lake City is close enough to a lot of our major locations that it just made sense. And it could double for a bunch of the other locations because Salt Flats are in there, Bryce Canyon, Lake Powell. And as you guys know, we went to all of them. And then we doubled part of the desert out near halfway to the Salt Flats for Joshua Tree. So just logistically, Financially, it, it made a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, there's so much production. I ended up working on a film shortly after Bonneville, right? A pilot where they, they were out of crew, but they have so much crew, but they were out of it that they invited me to come from. It's the same production team that, that worked on Bonneville, had me come out and work on, on this pilot, but it was really kind of surprising to me just how much it was shot there. Like One Tree Hill was always shot there, I believe. I do like that we're saying that all the locations are in and around right there, but they're in and around Utah. So you pull out a map <laughs> and look at those miles. And I remember just being in vans for hours and hours. You know, We scouted, you know, how many times did we go down to Lake Powell or, you know, Bryce? We scouted that even before we went there. So from yeah. our experience, <laughs> I spent a lot of time in a van on that uh, that show. Yeah, we, we, we absolutely did. But but you're 100% right because Bryce Canyon is three and a half hours from Salt Lake City. Lake Powell is roughly four and a half hours. Vegas is six hours. But the alternative is like actually going to Baja, <laughs> um, actually going to Joshua Tree. It, it's It was logistically on an independent film as good as we could get it really logistically it's amazing i mean but not to not to put out a number here but i just went back and i saw the budget that you we spent on this and it's like that's insane i cannot believe that movie got made for that number i totally forgotten that yeah so we won't say that number it is but just have what you (laughs) think it was and that's that's what we spent on that movie (laughs) And I don't think we were short uh, to the point of there being available crew. We had local production assistants. I think we had one local AD, but there was also money being spent on bringing us in. Eric, you and I came in from Los Angeles. We had another AD that came in from Los Angeles. Um, Taylor was on full travel on that as well, right? 
Yeah, I think we put people up local. I mean, they were all sh- they were all huddled up in like one house, weren't they? But yeah, we brought in a lot of people. The whole AD yeah. staff. We hired one local AD, right? Yeah, and uh, Jeffrey Kimball, our cinematographer, was definitely definitely flown in as well. Isn't it interesting? I mean, here's this tiny little movie, obviously with these th- three amazing actresses in it. But here's Jeff Kimball, who had done. I mean, what had he done? Top Gun and you know, Mission Impossible. It's a huge yeah. DP. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of the perfect time. It was right when John Woo kind of had his big fallout. So he had a lot of free time. <laughs> so when it came up, it just hit perfectly right in his schedule. Yeah. Well, I remember him saying over and over, I'm doing this because, you know, I want to get my Lifetime Achievement Award. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. that's, it, it was going to tick off that box. I've done it. <laughs> he wanted to do the big Vista, you know, West movie. So He was, he was doing it waiting until somebody could actually come up with another film to be able to afford his day rate. <laughs> Which he constantly would talk to me about because he's like, what? hey, what's your dad up to? Is he, has he got something else for us? Has he got something else for us? Yeah. 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 Everybody out there should just, sorry, everybody out there should just Google a picture of Jeff because he's going to like be wearing this funny hat. He's an old guy. You're like, Jeffrey was incredible to work with. He's a phenomenal cinematographer and as, as has already been alluded to, he's worked with John Woo. Uh, he's worked with Tony Scott. I mean, Jacob's Ladder, True Romance, like all these movies, uh, and he's incredible. An interesting thing there is Billy Fraker was supposed to shoot the film first. Uh, and uh, he, he, I knew him from USC, Chris, the director, knew him from USC, and then his wife became very ill. And so when it came time to find another cinematographer, uh, it, by that time, Jessica Lange was already not signing the dotted line, but pretty much on board. So we, it was very much, you have to have a cinematographer of a certain level because she wants to feel safe on camera. And... Thankfully, as soon as we mentioned Jeffrey's name, that fit the bill. Uh, and he was a key component of being, of, of honestly holding the film together. Because if we, if we didn't get the right cinematographer, uh, not to sound like too fatalistic or dramatic, but it is true. Like, like she and Kathy Bates both were like, well, we want to know who it is before we move any further. And so Jeffrey's name fit the bill and we kept moving ahead. It's, it's kind of interesting with, with Jeffrey and how his, his career started around the Scots, but he, he was one of those guys that Bruckheimer really brought along from being an incredible commercial cinematographer and the mm-hmm. effects that he would give you. So when Bruckheimer started doing large pictures instead of doing these commercials and whatnot, and, and what he, just, he was carried along with that and kind of changed a lot of how films were viewed and how they were shot, for, for blockbusters especially, for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk some more about the specific challenges of doing a road movie. Um, we had driving rigs. We had special cars. We had multiple Bonnevilles um, for different shots. There's just a lot of work, both from the camera, AD, and the producing perspectives. Yeah, and also not just you know cars, but those were convertible cars. And then you have three women in there that you know are in hair and makeup for a certain number of hours a day, and you're going to drop them in the car and then pretend you're driving across the state of Utah with the top down. So it was challenging. And this was not shot in the summer. This was what, October and November we're shooting this. So the weather was a constant challenge. Second week of October, we started production. And then we went through to uh, the night before Thanksgiving uh, in Utah. And then we reconvened in California. I remember so. being very, very, very cold. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is so funny you hit that because when you start looking at photos from that time, we are always bundled up. But, you know, oh. It starts at 6.30 in the morning in the dark and we are wearing parkas and boots and hats. You can't even see our faces. And then by the mid-afternoon, you're do- we're down to t-shirts again. And then we start bundling back up as it gets night again. I mean, it was, uh, the weather was, was a force of nature, so they say. I, 
I, I remember being on the salt flats and there was there was frost forming inside of the uh, the the camera truck where the where the where the uh, dark room was, and I had come down with like a twenty four hour flu, and I'm in there loading uh, loading magazines with one bag in my hand. I had another bag to my right of me that I was using to actually throw up in because I was, it was just a full day. It was the most intense memory I ever have loading anything on any film. And I was just always thinking, just throw up in the right direction. Don't put it inside the bag. It's funny, Skid, you're saying, you know, you have your fondest memories of this show and then clearly uh, Morgan has fond memories. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, between that and having every single battery we ever got sent out to us from Panavision, every battery died that we ever got because of either the weather or whatever it was, we keep, kept everything plugged in all the time. But we had more batteries on that film than there were blockbusters that were being shot across the country. At one point when they told us that, we thought that was a really funny, funny achievement to have. And at least we were only four or five hours from the nearest airport. So, you know, yeah. no problem. <laughs> yeah. You know, a really important thing that uh, Eric had a great brainstorm in pre-production because again, it's a road made more outside. You're talking about, you know, the challenges of having a road movie and then the time of year we're shooting in Utah, but we're talking about where do we go for a covered set if we're having bad weather? And obviously the majority of the film takes place outside. So there are only so many days, even when you could have a covered set, then there's the budget where you can only, we can only afford to build so many covered sets. So, so covered sets were not really an escape that, that we had the luxury of often. And Eric made the decision early on to, what scenes could take place in the rain if they had to? And so we basically used a lot of exterior scenes as coverage sets, and it was a brilliant idea, and it saved our ass on multiple occasions that we would have just been uh, screwed in Utah. Because the thing about weather in Utah that time of year is it's not just cold, it's unreliable. It could, you can go from rain to snow to 70 degrees in the same day. And so that was a, a great idea that Eric had that saved us, it saved us money, it saved us time, it saved us shooting days. I'll take that. I'll put that on my resume. Thank you much. <laughs> uh, and, and as he's saying, also, you know, we're just discounting. Kimball's a great uh, DP, but, you know, the clouds, the cloud cover was crazy. You know, I think we shot every good sunset we had and somehow they're all in the movie, but you'll, you'll see long sections even at the salt flats, you'll see, you know, there's not a breath of sun for, for two days in there. So we're, we're socked in and um, we're driving around with these ladies in these, uh, in the convertible, you know, and Jeffrey's completely surrounded the car with uh, bounce and flags and lights and stuff. But you see the, the lighting's constantly changing on these guys shot to shot. So we were, uh, we were fighting it and the wind as well. You know, oh, crazy. Well, at one point they put, uh, and I, I should say they, the, uh, the grips and electric. So grip, key grip, uh, Mitch Stelling and uh, gaffer Danny Delgado. Uh, again, we, they, we have to soften up the light because we're outside. It's one of the few completely sunny days that we had. And, but it's harsh lighting. And, we're, and we're, we're, we've got to light these women in this car. Uh, uh, and they came up with the idea of, and I can't remember if it was a 12 by 12 foot or 20 by 20 foot silk screen diffusion on the side of the road car and you know Eric was talking about wind and I remember that day pretty much as soon as the truck hit 15 miles an hour and Eric you probably know better than I did I, I, I do uh, it was like they were on a on a America's Cup sailboat trying to trying to hold the car, the, the car steady but these are some of the things that were done during this film despite the weather and so on. Yeah, you, you kind of have to because again you do not want direct front or side light on, on 
anybody in, in this case, and certainly the, these ladies here. So I'd actually forgotten it till I pulled up these pictures and it looked like, you know, as you said, you know, a sailboat going down the road there. It's like, I've been doing this a while and I have not seen 12 eyes put up on the side of, of a car driving down a highway before and uh, haven't done it since. There's uh, something to be said for the fact that uh, if people listen to this, probably maybe some do and some don't know what a digital intermediate is. We can go into a, a studio setting or like in a theater setting and you have a, a computer guy there and the cinematographer and sometimes producers, directors, and they will add lights. They will take away clouds. I mean, there's, there's amazing things that they can do, but I, I bet dollars to donuts, everybody on this sh uh, who was involved in the producing side of this and, and, and Jeffrey who shot the thing would love to go back and change some of that stuff with a DI. It would have, it would have made things immeasurably easier, I bet. Absolutely. I, I would say there was little to no digital. John, hop in there. <laughs> oh, they, they, very little. Very, very little. Yeah, and this was, was uh, 2006, so. Yeah, it, it, that was, and the, the discussion was actually had because digital intermediate was not even close to commonplace at that point, which means it was super expensive. And the amount of technicians as well that, I think Kodak certified certified them at the time. I don't remember if Kodak did or or the labs did, but whoever did, there were so few of them running around as well. They were expensive just because it wasn't commonplace. And when we looked at the numbers, they're like, well, we can't afford it. You know, there's there's a limit even when you have a decent budget for an independent film. Like you said earlier, what we got for what we had was still remarkable considering it's a road trip movie with two Academy Award winner winning actresses and the third one also nominated, et cetera. So, yeah. So again, not talking numbers, but I mean, there's, there's a frame we can put this in to help people. This was what a 27, 28 day movie here. So very short film. Everybody's working for, I mean, the cast is all working for basically scale, you know, Skid and I and everybody was working under a low budget contract. So we were getting way below our rate. You know, people were picked up on flat non-union. So, you know, it was, it was condensed as you could possibly make, but then we go out and we sit in the salt flats, you know, and look at some of those shots in there, you know, the wides of the car park there and when it's racing along and our villa out in the water. I mean, mm -hmm. they're absolutely gorgeous. You know, mm -hmm. what did that cost? You know, that was there. So we're using all the production value of Utah to create visual money that we didn't have. Yeah. Well, another big factor there is as far as getting, uh, bang for the buck as he used the cliche is uh again eric like when you were scheduling the film you so i all right i don't know I, I imagine most people below the line know this but as a producer as you're making budgets your most expensive day uh on any like your most expensive days are your fir first days at a location because you got to get everything there you got to book everybody into new hotels and you've got the teamsters unloading and loading trucks and everything else first days can sometimes be twice as expensive as every subsequent day and on Bonneville, that was pretty much the case. Our first days were almost always twice expensive than every other day, like day after that. And so you're talking about the schedule. It goes to like drive home the point of how vital a strong schedule is because you maximize those days and minimize the first days. Uh, if you don't minimize first days on something like Bonneville, you're, you're just done. You're done before you start shooting. And uh, I'm sorry, when you talk about first days, you mean first days in new locations, what you're referring to, right? Yeah, correct. Okay, yeah, yeah. You know, Lake Powell was three days. The Joshua night sequence was two days. The uh, Salt Flats were two days. So you'd get there, <laughs> you'd hit it hard, and then you were picking up and you were on the move again. Yeah. 
We did a lot of moving around on this film. Let's talk about some of the specific locations. The Salt Flats, in addition to being beautiful, I remember the driving there. If I recall correctly, we had the principals, we had stunt people, and we did driving with the stand-ins out on the Salt Flats. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, I think, isn't that our only stunt sequence? I mean, we did the tackle with them, the girls at the truck, but the, that driving and the skid out was the only stunts. I seem to remember that we were sending a B camera off and doing drive-bys with the photo doubles a lot, correct? Those weren't yeah. stunt players. Yeah, every, every opportunity we had, uh, my, you know, whatever was myself and the cam op uh, varied depending on who we had working with the A crew and then split off on certain days and the stand-in. So yeah, anytime we went to a location, we split out to get additional photography. Uh, and so whether it's the Salt Flats, Bryce Canyon, Lake, Lake Powell, so on. I love our Joshua tree forest. There's no yes. Joshua trees Isn't it anywhere great? in any of the shots. Yes. <laughs> Short of the sign that says Joshua tree when we drive by. I was watching it the other day with my wife and she's like, where are you guys? I'm like, we're in Joshua tree. And she goes, aren't there trees? Joshua <laughs> yeah. trees in Joshua tree? And I'm like, no, not really. I don't think so. <laughs> as far as you know. <laughs> yeah, we, we actually priced out some Joshua trees. Uh, Chris Demiri was trying very hard. The production designer was trying very hard to get us to bring them in. It was like, we can't afford that, man. We got, we got numbers. And it was like, yeah, that's not happening. <laughs> All right. These are the compromises you make. Yes. Let's talk some more about Lake Powell. We had two boats, one for the camera, and then we had the crew on a support boat. Like a, often a driving shot, we'll mention this separately, you have like a follow car that carries your hair, makeup folks, uh, uh, camera assistant, other folks to help manage the shooting. On Lake Powell, we had to have a whole separate boat that was carrying that crew along to support the filming. Yeah, it was a second houseboat. So we had the, the departments on there and we, we snuggied them up when we could, but there were sequences where we had to pull them apart and, you know, shuttle people back and forth. There was also a barge. Remember the barge that had the porta potty sitting on it and a <laughs> crane and a light. So uh, that's how we were doing some of the night work. We were lighting from a barge. And as an aside, you guys remember this, we did the night work out on the lake. It was one of the silliest things it's like we are in the middle of a lake shooting night work and and i actually remember arguing jeffrey over this i'm like let's just put it at the end of the dock okay and we'll just shoot out toward the lake and we'll never know and he's like it'll just be a black hole out there and i'm like you are never ever going to see the shore from where we are and pull up the dvd and look at it jeffrey's right i'm entirely wrong you can completely see the shore lit up in the background and <laughs> for what it's worth there it is. I guess uh, he's a DP that knows what he's talking about. And I was a 34-year-old AD that did not. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing I love about Jeff is that he, he, he really enjoyed marijuana. Do you, do you remember? I oh, yeah. can't forget. Oh, yeah. <laughs> on the barge and be when like, I said he's an interesting person we should talk about, I was leaving <laughs> that open, so go. He, he's, it's I California. Remember, the one uh, houseboat we lovingly re referred to in the camera department as the battery boat because we had every single outlet on there with batteries plugged into it because we couldn't keep any alive. But he'd be like, hey, well, you boys cover for me while I go out back and have a split. It was just like the, the guy's personality was like one of my favorite things. I remember working with anybody I ever worked with because he's just – such a unique dude. He was never stressed out. And I couldn't figure that out until I got to know him better of why he was never stressed out. Everything yeah. Was he, he would always tell me, he's like, hey, Kilker, man, Kilker, listen, I, I got to go to the car and take my eye medicine, man. And I, that, that was his, or, or, or my glaucoma medicine. I, I was like, Jeffrey, man, it, it, it's all good. And I think by the third day of shooting, he and I started to drive to the set a lot together. And not because I was smoking with him, but because I, we just enjoyed each other's company. 
Um, oh, oh, please. You remember the car would come rolling up in the morning and doors would open oh up and God. there would just be a cloud coming out of the car no, like we're I, shooting some Cheech and Chong movie. Oh, believe me. <laughs> I, I would be sitting in the back seat with, with Danny in the passenger seat and Jeffrey driving and it's just like, wow, this is... But, but for me, it was like, this is priceless. I, at that point, I was like two and a half years out of film school and like I'm with... Jeffrey Kimball and and look, Danny Delgado is a great gaffer. I mean, you're, you're talking a phenomenal gaffer in Hollywood, and I'm that type of film geek where I I I I love the below the line people, like the ones the people who make the movie happen. And so that was like just dream time to me, being in the car with them and hearing all these stories. But it was it, it was just it was just very cool. Uh, the two of them, and they are they're very laid back. And but it was the the eye medicine or the glaucoma medicine. I was like, hey, whatever you need to do, Jeffrey, you just go ahead. <laughs> I mean, for, from my perspective, because I was like 22 and about as green as it could possibly be, it was the first film I ever loaded on, never loaded a thing before, and Jeffrey vouched for me, which I was like all of a sudden finding out that I was loading on this movie, so I had to learn a Panavision for two weeks before we went out there. But I thought everybody was goody-goody two-shoes and nobody was ever smoking weed, no adults that anyway. So it's like, to me, it was this big awe-inspiring thing of like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, these people, these people smoke weed, it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you just you just hit upon that uh, you know you were 22 uh, I th I thought I was still pretty young you know and Kilker was running around over here and my memory of that crew and certainly the after hour parties and you know we were shooting six day weeks and somehow we would still go out every night and our sixth seventh day which was a Sunday maybe we would still go out it was like I have a lot of fond memories that was a young and fun crew so it was great. I remember so much of it because I was literally petrified every single day that I was going to flash mags or ruin something. So every single night, I was just happy when the dailies would go out and we'd hear back that, every, that there was an image there. It was, it was, it was seriously, a, 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 it, it shock trained me into a lot of the stuff that happened. So I remember a lot of it very clearly. This is the movie where I started drinking bourbon because... <laughs> <laughs> when we're wrapping and planning for the next day, Eric's habit at the time was a little bit of scotch, but I was not much of a liquor drinker myself. And the scotch was a little harsh, but then Mr. Kilker comes along. He's a bourbon drinker and the bourbon was just enough sweeter that I felt like I could participate in our uh, rap activities and take that bourbon route blessed by the producer rather than being stuck with the scotch. Uh, refined scotch, I'm sure, but what Eric was bringing, uh, was bringing to rap. Well, you know, when, when you are shooting out in Tooele, Utah, uh, doubling for Joshua Tree, floating a, how big was that, that, that balloon? We oh. Put up there, like 20 oh, foot diameter. Uh, and your grips and electrics are, are packing out, and the, and the ADU is packing out at, um, I don't know, what was it, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning? What you do is you show up with bottles of bullet. And you help them wrap cables. <laughs> and uh, you hope that everyone can wake up the next day. <laughs> and somehow, wait, here's what I've said this like five times, though. You know, we've had such, we had a great time here. And I go back and look at these pictures. I'm like, oh, my God, we're miserable. We're cold. It's raining. And I'm like, I don't really have any negative memories of that happening. I remember, oh, it's cold, you know. But it's like, I'm hanging out with friends and we're making a movie. And it was yeah. just really a bizarre good time under difficult challenging circumstance that didn't scar me at all you know <laughs>
should have come hung out in the dark room. (laughs) (laughs) You know what that smelled like. Yeah. (laughs) It's funny you say that because I'm pretty sure this is the last time I ever shot film. I can't think of shooting film after that. So there it is. Goodbye. Same here. Definitely, definitely last time I shot film. So I've always wanted to know if there was any, any damage that happened into the, into the equipment, such as the cars or any, any of the other stuff that we had out there on the salt flats, because um, I, I just always figured that there had to be some kind of a corrosion issue that, that would take place after being out there. If that had any effect on the rental of the cars or anything like that or insurance. Fun fact about the cars, we, we bought them. Uh, we, well, we bought two and rented one. Uh, the one we rented never touched the salt flats. Uh, so there were three cars total biggest pain in the ass about the cars. And I, and I will come back to the corrosion on those salt flats. Uh, biggest pain in the ass about the cars were they were the old school, like sixties kind of green windshields that make, uh, make anyone look like crap and, or that they're under bad fluorescent lighting it was, a, and Jeffrey, the second he saw them was like, they have to go. Uh, I, I made phone calls for about three days straight and found the only three, uh, clear, windshields that would fit a 1967 Bonneville in the country. Then we bought them and had them shipped in. We found one car in New York, one car in uh, Indiana, and one car in Montana, I think. Uh, and two of them, we, like I said, two of them we bought. And the third we rented and returned to the guy. But the, the, yeah, the, the salt flash is extremely corrosive. In fact, rental car, car agreements in the area have, have a clause that if you drive the car on the salt flats and they find out about it, uh, you're buying the car. Uh, so, and Jeffrey actually, uh, Jeffrey Kimball actually brought this up because he shot a lot of car commercials on the salt flats as well. And usually car dealers who bring the car, like the prototypes or whatever for the 2000, whatever car, Cadillac, whatever that they shoot on the salt flats, they basically throw those cars away afterward. That's how, that's how corrosive it is. Uh, in Wendover, Nevada, right over the state line, there are car washes that, that, um, uh, allegedly get all the salt from underneath because that's what, what happens. The salt gets all up in there and just corrodes the hell out of everything. Um, but they, they're not known for working that great. And that's why the one picture vehicle, the, the prime picture vehicle, we, we, um, we never, that never touched the salt flats. It almost did because if, I don't know, Eric, if you remember, or if the, the rest of you remember, uh, one of um, the, the Teamsters drove off that kind of pier or jetty that went out onto the salt flats, just made a left. And if you remember that went down like two or three feet and destroyed the axle of one of the cars. And so we were in a position where we thought the picture car was going to have to go out onto the salt flats as well. So it was the salt flats, the corrosiveness like scared us on a bunch of fronts and that, but that's the story behind the cars. Well, you hate tying your movie to like three 30, 40 year old cars here. So I I remember those arriving. We painted them too, right? All of those cars we had to paint. Painted two of them. So one of them, that was an original color on? Oh, no, wait, no, you're right. Actually, I'm sorry. We did. That's not a factory color. We did. You know what? The reason why I I mixed it up is one of them, uh, the the main picture car, we spent more money on and painted extremely, like, you know, did the full, the the whole nine yards, whatever you want to call it. The other two, we use the same paint, but it was only like one coating. It wasn't baked afterwards because we knew we were never going to get close enough. Uh, right. Really also, I, th- I think we ended up painting the upholstery white on it too. So it was Correct. flaking off halfway through. They were in various shapes of uh, drivability. But uh, I remember one arriving, it was red and we might've had a yellow one, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, we had, yeah, that's right. That's right. We, we had, one of them actually wasn't, it was a white one, a yellow one and a red one. And the red one was like a bright red, like a fire engine. Yeah, red. yeah, yeah. Cherry red. Hmm. 
There you are. Way behind the scenes there. That is yeah. deep lore. <laughs> what color were the original Bonnevilles? <laughs> but speaking of the salt flats then, you know, you're exactly right. There's that one road that went all the way out, and that's the only place you could drive a car out there. So you'll see in the movie that where they're driving from the pavement to the salt, all we did was cover the end of that road with salt, and that's where we shot all the scenes. So oh, yeah. we're actually still for the most part, sitting on the pavement, just having covered it with salt. And a character would walk along toward the car and leave footprints and you'd see the pavement underneath. So had people with brooms. How much salt was that? I, I can't remember how many tons, but it, w it was the better part of a dump truck full of salt, um, if, not, <laughs> if, if not full. Uh, it was a completely unexpected expense. And you would think that salt there wouldn't be that expensive, but it was very expensive. Uh, and another fun fact about that was at the end of this jetty type of road that went out of the Bonneville Salt Flats was the National Park sign for the Bonneville Salt Flats. And it was riddled with bullet holes and, and uh, it, not from our crew. Uh, I want to make that very clear. And the AD unit, I'm sure, wants to make that very clear. Uh, but not from our crew, just from people, tourists, uh, locals, uh, gamblers from just over the state line in Wendover, Nevada, I'm sure did all that work. But the sign looked like hell but besides the sign looking like hell we're as eric said we're selling that the where we are is way out in the salt flats and so if we see the national park sign obviously we are at the entrance of the park and that destroys you know the image that we're or the the cheat that we're, we're trying to accomplish so we actually paid the national park service to remove that sign and from the end and then we had to pay to put a new sign in that did not have bullet holes in it see there you are doing your public service for the national park district that's amazing. That, that's One more way this film helps society. Yes. I, I love the idea of having to bring, bring salt. I mean, for to bring in sand to the beach, but my God. <laughs> we brought salt so from somewhere thing. else, mind you. It was not from that area. They had to turn <laughs> that in. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Now, also, the, the, it's in the movie, but the salt flats are all flooded at that point. But I do think that was kind of a rewrite based upon the fact that we were there that time of year. So a question I had been, I've been wondering about for quite some time is if anybody still has a picture of if either was, it was a, I think electric or a grip that when we were on the salt flats, he put on his rollerblades, took his shirt off, it's long blonde hair, and he was skating on the salt flats. And I, I didn't know if anybody remembered that or if anybody has a photo of that. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that that was uh, Todd Taylor. I'm pretty sure he was an electric, I think. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, incredible extreme athlete. He's, and if you, even if you talk to our crew at the time, when, when I say like extreme, he was kind of underground famous. He was like triple X, like the Vin Diesel movie. He was like triple X, uh, among extreme athletes uh, around the planet at that time, obviously before YouTube and everything else. But we had, we had a ton of people like that on, on our crew. You know, we had Haley Batum, who is just like, production assistant extraordinaire one of the, frankly one of the best crew people i've ever worked with she was amazing and she was a she was sponsored by some snowboard company and and could have easily gone down the path of x games when that was just starting and everything else but you know she wanted to work in film and 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 work on movies instead but our, our crew is filled with people like that or, or like like i don't know if you guys remember paulie meehan our dolly grip he incredible incredible guitar player we're sitting on set the one day and he breaks out a guitar and he starts playing like a virtuoso at it like who could teach a juilliard and he's he's built like a bear he's got thick sausage fingers and you're like how the hell do you play a guitar like that and everyone just stopped and just started listening it was incredible 
hundred percent. You know, like I was saying earlier, you know, it's a it was a young, energetic crew, and that carried over into everything. And actually, just the energy and the fun we were having on set because people weren't miserable and tired. You know, you could still work eighteen hours a day and still go to the bar, have a good time, go home, get three hours sleep, come back and do it the next day. And that is. That's as good as it gets when you're on location. Very much so. And we all, we all stayed, well, not all of us. So, some people were staying in that house we rented. That's right, Eric. But we also, the majority of us st- were staying at a residence inn. And we, we pretty much owned the place. We had like one or two whole floors. And, and all of our crew were in these double suites. Uh, at least all of our crew from out of town. And even some from not far away, like uh, we put up in there. So that kind of was like a central hub that we then radiated out from there. To, we spent a lot of time together. Not only did we put the crew up, but we actually shot there. Skid, you were saying, what did we shoot on the stage? And you're like, oh, that must be a staging. No, we built that like in the conference room of the residence in. Which, yeah. uh, which, oh, that's right. We did build in the conference room of the residence Yeah, in. we did. And we had like rain outside the windows, you know, and that's all at the residence in. Yeah. Um, that's the, that is the, uh, the Las Vegas hotel room was at the residence in. Yep. Interior, and, interior, our villas hotel room. Residence in forever, and uh, I think an exterior there as well. Didn't we do a drive up there? And uh, where was the restaurant? I think that restaurant was wasn't that the hotel restaurant? So the, the restaurant. Vegas restaurant. Uh, well, Vegas in general. So I, we shot exteriors uh, in Las Vegas. We, we we shot on the strip. We shot out out in front of the Riviera, and then we shot interior casino floor at I can't remember the name of the casino in Wendover, Nevada, uh, and then. They we as they make the turn to go to the host station uh, for the restaurant in the casino. We then cut to what was um, what, I can't remember which high rise hotel it was in downtown Salt Lake. We used their restaurant for the Vegas. And, and we had to be out by like four thirty on the dot. Remember this because they were yeah. going to open. So <laughs> as we're wrapping out, they were like opening the doors and people were coming in. So that was part of our agreement. And we made the company move to the Marriott that day and yes. shot the rest of that. <laughs> oh yeah it's only 12 years ago i got it <laughs> like i said traumatic traumatic <laughs> <laughs> completely traumatic um, i think also there was a rush that the schedule was front-sided because the leaves were going to turn right and then also the lake was getting cold so yeah. we were always building the schedule of we got to get to the lake as fast as possible so um even as it was i don't think we got down there till the mid part of the schedule but yeah, That's we, why the salt flats is later in this, and stage work is later. Yeah, that's that, that's right. Uh, I think I think the lake was the end of the first lake and Bryce Canyon. I think were the end of the first week in November. Hey, when we were at the lake, John, didn't you put on a wetsuit? Weren't you in the water to help Jessica uh, for her scenes? I, I I did. I we um our um our stunt coordinator came to us the morning of and said, oh well, one of my crew is sick or got injured or what, something else. He just but he didn't show. And he's like, we, we, I really don't feel comfortable doing this without another, you know, safety person in the water. And I said, I'm in. <laughs> so, so I put on a wetsuit and, and jumped in the water to uh, help spot uh, for when Jessica Lang, who frankly was a trooper, she was in that water a long time. And the water, Eric, you might remember, I don't know, I wasn't the water just like in the high 50s or something. It was cold. It was uh, really cold. Being that we're flagged, it was fucking cold, as I recall her saying <laughs> at the time. 
Don't want to impinge her, but uh, it was cold. Now, she was wearing this full wetsuit. Remember this? They put her in, and it was so buoyant, she kind of was floating like, you know, a big old fuzzy bear in there. So she was having actually a lot of trouble to make it look like she was swimming because it looked like she was floating on a raft. And then there was a scene where she had to dunk underwater, and we actually had to take her out and take the wetsuit off because she was so buoyant. She was floating. So yes, that one moment she was freezing her butt <laughs> yes. off. But I do remember her making comments about, well, she was able to do it because of her Scandinavian blood. <laughs> I, rem- I remember that clear as day. Her saying, well, I'm Scandinavian. I can handle this. So like, all right, well, good for you. Yeah, until you get in and it's like, this is cold. Yeah, I'm, I'm freezing in the wetsuit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember his name. Uh, stunt coordinator's name is Frank Bear. Phenomenal stunt coordinator. Did a great job for us. We did, as Eric said earlier, we didn't have a lot of stunts in the movie. But when we did, they were always really well run. Well, let's talk some more about our cast because it was a great group of folks, as you said, working on low scale in many cases. And this low budget movie, they really gave it their all. I mean, 100%. Look at, look at those three actors there. And they're truly, if you run the schedule and take a look at it, they're, they're in every scene. So they were, they were there, right? And uh, they were going through the same stuff we were. They were out in the desert. They were in the rain. They were on the boats. And they were there for no money, all right? I mean... It's, it's more money than some people make, but what, again, whatever you think it is, cut it in half because nobody was making any money off being there. Everyone chose to be there. And I once, I saw an interview with Joan Allen who was saying that she can tell she's on a good movie right away if she finds herself between shots just sitting and talking to people. And she says on a film like this or an experience generally in a movie, if you find that you're just as intrigued talking to the people around you as you are making the project, you know you're on a good project. Fun fact about Joan Allen, uh, and she, amazing woman, and just the way she treats everybody. She's just a phenomenal human being. Uh, but a really great thing about her, when it came time to negotiate contracts, she actually insisted that she stayed in the same hotel as the crew. And she does this because she comes from a theater background and she understands that a lot of times the crew ends up in very, um, what's the best way to put it? Uh, horrible. Uh, compromised. Com- compromised, thank you. Compromised <laughs> accommodations, thank you, Eric. And so one of the things she does is she insists she stays in, in the same place as the crew because it, it guarantees that the producers are going to be treating the crew well also. It's a very cool thing. It, it's actually something we had to kind of negotiate around because if, um, uh, and, and Morgan can tell you all about this kind of thing. The, the actors run what's called a favored nations contract, and I'm not going to go into that. People can look it up, or if Morgan wants to describe it, define it more, uh, more simply than I can. But it meant that we had to make sure that it was okay with Jessica and Kathy that Joan stayed in a different type of hotel than them. But she does that to make sure the crew stays in a good, good spot. Uh, I think that's very cool. And that's only the tip of the iceberg of how well she treated the crew. One of the benefits of her staying in the same spot is she was the one that was also going out with us every night. So, you know, if we were at the bar, I guarantee that Joan was down there as well. So, you know, I've been doing this a while and Joan was as accessible and friendly and in it with us as anybody I've ever worked with. Really obvious, just the the amount of rapport that those ladies had with each other. It was hard to not think they didn't know each other for a very, very, very long time. Kathy Bates was a lot of fun as well. Always pleasant to be around on set. Nice thing to say to everybody. 100%. And, you know, that was actually my second movie that I'd done with Jessica in like two years. So um, I knew her coming into this and I've seen her through a gamut of different experiences. And she came into this, you know, as positive and just working at it 
all the time. So, and she honestly looked like she was enjoying herself. So maybe previously being on a film with her where she was not enjoying herself, I can see the difference. <laughs> it's the mark of a really good actress, isn't it? Um, 100%. (laughs) So, yeah, obviously a film like this, for whatever level it was working on, had to be that these three women genuinely looked like friends because you're meeting them midlife where they've been friends for decades. 20 years we've established they've known each other. So there's no buildup to this. In the opening scene, you have to go, these are three people that like and care and love each other. So God bless them for pulling that off. But we had a nice supporting cast as well. And I think, uh, obviously, um, Tom Skerritt plays a huge role. He was a pleasure to work with. Um, and even the small roles, uh, Christine Bransky as her daughter, a lot of stuff. I, I found her very pleasant for the time that we were working together. And then I want to make a special shout-out that you guys got uh, Tom Wolfbat, uh, Luke Duke. To, uh, I, I have a story there, actually, on Luke Duke. Is he told me, Tom, he says, he took me aside later on. He goes, you know, this is the first movie I've ever made. So there we go. He had never made a movie before. He had been Mr. TV his whole life in theater. So there it is. Put that on your resume, Kilker. Tom <laughs> Wopat's first movie. Don't forget we also had Tom Amandez. Uh, Tom Amandez was, you know, he has almost like a cult following. I can't remember if the show was Seventh Heaven or whatever the show was that, that he was on. It was a super popular show, and the people who f- liked that show followed it devoutly. Uh, and he was a he was a complete gentleman. He was super nice. He actually paid. I don't know if you guys know this. He paid for the entire crew to eat dinner one night. Um, at, at, I can't remember what the restaurant was, but he he actually did a lot of really cool stuff. Just like you know, Kathy three or four times throughout the shoot, pay, like dropped her credit card at a Starbucks and said, "Go have whatever you want all day for the crew." Um, she did that. I know the one, the place I remember that people really took advantage of that was, uh, in, in a good way. Cause she wanted them to was at the casino in Wendover. Uh, so, you know, we, we had some people do some really cool things. And, and I also want to add Christine Baranski. She got off the plane, came straight to set, walked onto set and was a pro from the first moment. It was awesome. I mean, like she came in in character and it's just, it was really cool to see. I've used that example a number of times when I've been teaching classes as well. Um, just as, as far as like being a pro and showing up. It is. Tom was shooting, though, in Utah, right? So it was a grab that, hey, here's this fabulous actor that's in town. Let's see if we can get him, right? We didn't bring him in. Yeah, he he was there. So the scenes with Christine and Tom at the tennis court, uh, we shot those in Utah as well, I don't recall. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. That uh, the funeral parlor we shot there, the tennis court, those were even on the same day, weren't they? Yes, crappy cold rainy day you'll see they're out like sitting on the tennis court and it looks as gloomy as all get up but uh that's where we were seen of them sitting in front of the fountain that, that was all at the uh, same location well yeah and if you remember uh tom actually we jumped in the pool and came out of the pool that day uh for the one for, for one scene uh in that weather and the, the, the heater for the pool was had not been turned on because we had rented the location from a family that was out of town so him jumping in that pool took a <laughs> took quite a bit of guts. And then it, another fun fact from that day, we had crew. So the the funeral scene, funeral home scene, the front the front of the building. I don't know if you remember, we had crew using hair dryers to 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 uh, steam the frost off the the foliage, the flowers, and the and the greenery out front, so that it wouldn't look like they weren't in a, ho- a funeral home in Santa Barbara. <laughs> it's funny. We keep telling stories about. Boy, that sounds terrible. <laughs> it's like, no, it was awesome. We had hair dryers. And that, that was the very end of the schedule because those two uh, 
certainly she came in at the end. We went to Arvilla's twice. So that uh, funeral home was at the end. And then we went back to Arvilla's house, which had been, it was day one. We shot a day there. And then we came at the back end where we had. Yes, second, current, second to Christine. last day. Yep. Because our last day there was the, uh, the night shoot at the motel. At the motel with that exterior piece that isn't in the cut with her sleeping did. in the car. And that was like the very last thing we shot. I remember it was 15 degrees and we're all wearing parkas and she's lying like in negligee in the back of this Bonneville outside trying to keep the snow off her. So. <laughs> also great memories. <laughs> <laughs> and then we packed it up. You guys went to Las Vegas, right? For your little second unit. Yep. I went home for Thanksgiving and then we started up again for our two days in uh, California. Yeah, I think we got back together, what's December 3rd, something like that. Yeah, first, first two few days up there. And the California was work is where we did the final beach scenes. Um, did we also do some road work in California as well, if I recall? Yeah, yeah. We had her being pulled over by that uh, police officer, the CHP. Uh, they'd been dressing in the car and speeding to the funeral. So we did a driving work with the crane right there. And then we uh, did the stuff down on the beach, which the weather turned on that. I remember uh, being out there getting wet, cold, and raining. So go figure. Came to California, it was still cold. Montana de Oro, right? That's the state park, I think. We were yeah. Yeah. Up, I remember. In, uh, Morro Bay, right? We were having lunch in the parking lot there in the rain. We had no tents. So it was yes. just kind of sitting at these tables with their plates of food just being rained on. So your food's kind of floating on a plate. <laughs> and like, this is fun. <laughs> Speaking of that crane that, that, that you were talking about earlier that we're pushing up the hill at that location, that crane, so again, great great advantage of having a, uh, a cinematographer like Jeffrey Kimball, that, that was the latest iteration of the techno crane that the company put out and they wanted Jeffrey to use it on a project. So we got that crane for about a fifth of what we would have had to pay for it uh, because of Jeffrey being our cinematographer. Which was great in the desert, right? Because we're not rolling dollies too much around up there. So, you know, we used, we used the heck out of that crane. Looking back at all these pictures, I'm like, wow, how do we have a crane in every shot? You know, techno, it's on the insert car, it's on the ground, we're moving this thing around. And I'm like, I don't have a crane on my show that every episode I spend two and a half times what you spend on that movie to shoot one seven-day <laughs> episode of television. <laughs> not to talk numbers, but just do the mental math real quick. It's it's funny. It's one of the things that I would uh, that I would always kind of experience with representing cameramen is we had a lot of really really well known older guys, and that these these all these young filmmakers and people wanted these these new up and coming guys. And I would always tell them, look, depending on what budget you have, they're available, and there's an, an immense amount of stuff that you'll be able to get, literally, if not free, almost free, because these large camera houses would love to have these guys using their gear because there's stuff that they aren't using then and. They have an existing relationship that you can just get so much more out of what you're doing and have somebody who is exponentially more experienced than anybody on your movie and everything will go so much better. Yeah. So, you know, you know, Morgan, I think, uh, and not that I want to go too far in the weeds on that, but I think that it, it's something important for people to understand that the cinematographer or director of photography, whichever credit they're going to take, uh, doesn't have to be the one operating the camera. And I think, I think that's one of the things that a lot of up and coming filmmakers, because you do so much running and gunning with such minimal crew and, and so many people are doing so many things, you don't realize that, okay, the cinematographer can be just the head of the department and, and work with a great cam op and first AC and second AC, and you can still lens a beautiful friggin' movie. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, he's the head of three departments. I mean, it's, he's just a, yeah. Uh, the real glue guy for the entire film. And so it's when, when people kind of want to skimp on that, it always, it always 
kind of pulled me in the wrong place because I feel like, well, then you're skimping on how good your movie can be visually because it's not because these guys are going to eat up a lot of your budget. They're going to get it done faster and it's going to, your whole film's going to look better. But you, you bring up an important point, Skid, or, or I'm sorry, Morgan, and, and Skid, I think this is something, I don't know if this has come up in, in other episodes. From a producer's perspective... Hang uh, on, hang he, on, John. You haven't listened to all the other episodes already? That's... <laughs> John, we, we is Eric in that. all of them? <laughs> so, <laughs> he's in more than his share. He's in more than his share, but... Sorry, John, go ahead. Wow. Mark keeps right. going to cut me off. <laughs> And, and anyway, what I, what I was starting to say was, you know, Morgan mentioned how cinematographers uh, are, you know, could be a, a glue person, man or woman, glue guy, glue, glue woman, whatever. Um, and one of the things that I was really driven home on Bonneville, but then as a producer, but then I also saw it uh, dir- directing a, a, another feature um, is uh, if you have a, a cinematographer running their department well and a first AD running the directing unit well, your set is in good hands. Um, because if those two crew members are not kicking ass, then the odds of you making your day are very low. Whereas if you have a solid uh, first AD and a solid cinematographer, you'll make your day and then that list of bonus shots or wish list shots that you might have, you'll, you'll knock a lot of those out too. But, but that's the key. Like the, the key to the set running well are those two individuals. In my opinion, that's been my experience. And it, it's interesting because a cinematographer has gone from being somebody who was kind of a taskmaster and a lot of times uh, could, could have been quite a screamer on sets to now most everybody who's working are all just really gentle soul, but very, very, you know, direct. But it's, uh, it's, it's kind of been the evolution. The film industry has, has kind of changed that particular, um, what do you want to call it, kind of uh, leadership type, I guess you'd say. Yeah, and I, I think there's, there's also the misconception that you know, great directors show up and they're doing all these things on set. And it's really like, no, no, actually like a really good director has done their work beforehand so that by the time they get to set, they can really focus on the creative like details, working with actors, the finer details of the cinematographer, production designer, et cetera, as opposed to feeling they've got to run around and micromanage. And again, that's that, that falls back on if you have a really, really solid department heads across the board, but especially again, the cinematographer and AD that you're just golden. Go ahead, Eric, bask in it. <laughs> no, th- this is where this needs to be, you know, on YouTube or, you know, video chat. So you can just see me, you know, just blushing over here. So God bless you, Kilker. Checks in the mail. <laughs> yeah, right. Whatever, man. Hey, Always been okay. Kilker style to kill him with kindness. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think a movie like this doesn't get done without a really good key second AD and a camera loader that really knows his stuff as well. I'm pretty sure I, would, that... I would 100% agree with that. <laughs> well, you know, you know we, 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 we joke around, we joke around, but, and I know somewhere I, I, I know I still have a crew list for Bonneville. I know Eric, I think I've, I've seen you look down and reference, you know, looking for Frank Bear's name before. And um, uh, it's, I, I show me the weak link. I mean, our, our, our crew, you know, especially keeping the theme of, of, of your podcast, Skid, we had a phenomenal crew. We had an excellent crew. It was very cohesive. And for an independent film to get through as many setups as we got through, as many company moves as we got through in, what was it, Eric, 28 days? Yeah, 28. It's, it's remarkable. Uh, plus the uh, reshoots. Plus the reshoots, it was yeah. a two day of re two days of reshoots, right? In uh, March, we came back and uh, actually did a little was, bit of stuff. It was three days total because we did one day in New York with Jessica. 
um, that myself and who was it, Chris, um, Chris Rowley, the director, Robert May, the other producer, I can't remember who, we had a couple of the crew members there, but I can't remember who because they weren't like the original crew. And then we had those other shoots. Um, where were they? In Pasadena, right? Or was it? Yeah, we had a little stage, but that was just for some pickups. I mean, the actual shooting was, we went back up to that beach and that was a... Uh, oh yeah, that's right. That was an auspicious day if anybody uh, remembers what went wrong that day. Yes. It stands in my memory, in my, in my career. <laughs> I have anybody want to take that one? You weren't there, my friend. You lucky, lucky dog. You bagged out on that reshoot. So. <laughs> I'm sure I was shooting something for more money. Yeah, you, you were. <laughs> so I, I drug a uh, AD up there that I've been working with named Rudy. I'm like, this is the best group of guys. This is going to go great. It's really cheap, low budge, so you won't make much money, but you're going to have a good time. And we got up there, and by the end of that, he's like, you liar. <laughs> so here, yeah, I'll tell the shortest version of this, or John, do you want to tell the no, shortest No, please, Eric, Eric, you go the, ahead. The shortest version of this was that we were going to shoot one day of Jessica, little pickup shots of her on the beach there to try to change the ending around. So that fine, no problem. We get up there, it's a split call because we have a little bit of uh, dusk and night work to do. And we get there, we roll open the truck, it's got the grip package on it. And we're like, where's the camera? And there's no camera on the truck. And they're like, no, this is it. This is all they had with us. We get on the phone to Panavision. It's still sitting in Los Angeles, three hours away, right? And we had no camera and we're the sun setting. So that was fun. We got the camera probably, what, John, a half hour before sunset, the, the camera landed. We had to find a PA, get him over to Panavision, hop a car, rent a van, drive him up. And in the meantime, the entire shooting crew is there for six, seven hours sitting there waiting for, for a camera. Oh, yeah. Or, it, it, you, know, you, you, you summed it up. I don't know what, what else I can add to that besides you're sitting there and and, and – Aside from the money that you, you're spending to be there, because everyone who works in the business understands every minute that you're not doing something, you're wasting money. You're just also just looking at a bunch of people bored off their asses. Um, and, it's, <laughs> and, and you throw in, like Eric was saying, I mean, <laughs> to defend the producing side of it, we did pay everybody as much as we could pay them on the film. But at the same time, they're not being paid that much. And so now you're just sitting around for... Like Eric said, it was like six or seven hours and we're losing light and it was just, I don't and know. There's, there's no backup plan, right? We had to have this shot because it was the new ending. None of these people were going to be there the next day. There's no magic hotels to go to. It's like, you have to shoot this shot or the just day doesn't even exist. This entire yes. endeavor is, is wasted, gone, and lost. So it's like, I, I can't ever really remember having that sinking of a feeling standing on a set, you know, rolling up the back of the truck and there's no camera or just watching the sun set very quickly. Because we had a different line producer, that, Rich Larson? No, not Larson. Um, Middleton. Richard Middleton. Richard Middleton. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's no fingers or blames. It's a thing that oh, happened. No. <laughs> it's I, just like, I, but it was bizarre. Actually, I would be crew without a camera. It's like, you know, a sailor without a boat. It's the strangest <laughs> experience. I, well, no, I actually, I actually bring it was sorry. Sorry, more. I was actually bringing, asking who Eric, just because he actually did a great job scrambling and at least getting a camera there. Yeah. They wasn't, I mean, we were scrambling for a plane, as I recall, it's we possible. Did. We put that on a plane, didn't we? Yeah, Somehow we, we, did all, we did all kinds of things. Um, like the, the immediate thing was, should somebody 
bolt and like race down back down there as fast as possible. And we're like, no, that's three and a half hours from here. So that's not, not, not re realistic. And then we thought, okay, maybe a plane. And then we, I can't remember why we couldn't get a plane, but that just was not happening. Yeah. But R Richard was doing everything he could and did do everything he could to, to finally get us the camera there. And With seconds to spare and to you'll spare. see the shot, which I do not think is in the movie, is it? That's the reshoot of the second ending that you didn't end up using. So it was That's almost correct. for naught in retrospect. All that stress is for naught. <laughs> but that yeah. If you look at the DVD, the, the, the scene is there. You know, it's the close-ups of Jessica, I believe, sitting in the car, the reshoot with the will. Mm -hmm. And something else. Oh, overlooking the, uh, the beach, right? That high yeah. wide shot we did? Yeah, correct. All yeah. right. So I've, I've wondered for, for years now that we had this particular scene that I can't remember where it was. I think it was at the last, the last uh, shot in this particular location that we had. And we had to get it done and we lost the light. And Jeffrey turns and goes, hey, pull every single light that we have off the truck and set it up. We're going to make this work. A hundred percent. That was a uh, scare in front of the, what the mini Mart or the truck stop. And if you look at the cut right now, it is as wide as you can possibly be and stay on the front of the mini Mart. So it's like edge to edge to the ceiling and he's standing there in the background and it was, you know, just dark. It was night. It wasn't even, sometimes you cheat this and you're like, Oh, I'll get it at dust. This was just flat out night. We're shooting it. Uh, and uh, it, it, it has some telltales. <laughs> For those that are watching close, you'll go, there's something weird about that shot. And there it is. Jeffrey Kimball doing his best to salvage uh, us on a very long day. Yeah, it's, it's completely, if you know, it's completely obvious. Uh, and then if you know anything about film, you probably would pick it up as well. Luckily, none of us know anything about film. So it's a great <laughs> <Yeah>. shot. <laughs> I want to ask about um, watching again. And I noted that, uh, Eric, you and I got single screen credits as assistant directors on this. I don't know whether that's just because John, the producing team, just loved us so much to give us that, or you didn't realize you could put three of our names up there at once and get away with it. No, that was a combination of Bob Brown and I really liking you guys. You deserved it. I don't know what else to say. I mean, when the time came for certain credits, we were like, you know, it just, it's deserved. And I, sh I should point out, I know, I know he's not below the line, but uh, Bob Brown is one of the best advocates for crew of any filmmaker I've met. I, I would never want to negotiate against him because he's an absolute bulldog in a negotiation. Um, but as far as, as protecting the crew and really taking care of the crew, he, he is really something else. Yeah, we should totally give a shout out to Bob because, you know, I'd done two movies with him. It's not about producers, but, you know, we'd be remiss to like talk all through how hard this show was without saying that, you know, Bob was really there and, uh, if this movie got done, a large part of it was to his efforts as well. So. You know, when you look through the photos, uh, the, the, the set photos, you, you graciously mentioned me, me earlier. Bob's in a lot of those photos as well. Bob, Bob is standing with the crew, and, and there are plenty of photos of him with hands-on gear as well. So it's, it's, um, he's a good man. There's photos of him wrapped around me, and there's photos of you wrapped around me. So there you go. Actually, Robert as well. I have a series of photos of you guys hanging on me, kissing me. So don't tell the wife or anybody else, and don't put them online, but they exist, just so you know. <laughs> well, you know, Eric, that brings up something fun. There's a reason why. You have such a beautiful singing voice. I don't know if this has come <laughs> up in other podcasts you've done with Skid, but for those of, uh, those of you who are listening, uh, Eric has a lovely operatic singing voice, and he breaks into song out of nowhere specifically show tunes very good for keeping up crew morale and so you're kissing me to get me to stop <laughs> no you just have such a lovely voice 
you know. <laughs> All right. There was just a lot of love in the room. That's, that's where I'm going with that. Exactly. <laughs> well, I have to say for myself and a little bit in summary, it was a little bit bittersweet talking about this because you guys have reminded me about a lot of the things that were challenging on this. Um, but my memories are of working with a great crew, working with a great cast, liking the director, liking the script, just feeling that it was really a wonderful production to be a part of. And yet at the same time, this is near the end of my time in Hollywood. Maybe one of the first times I realized that even when all that stuff was going well, I did not want to continually get up at 2.30 in the morning to drive out to the desert to make sure other people showed up and did their jobs. And I think the seeds of cynicism started to grow for me on this set. When everything was great, I loved the folks I was working with and still started to question whether that's what I wanted to do day after day. It's something that makes me respect you all the more for saying that says, you know, certainly you and I have this weird job where our job is to convince other people to do their jobs much of the time. So, you know, you'd like to think that it's completely organizational. You put out some paperwork and that's it. But really, it's a it's a lot of cheerleading and it's a lot of therapy. And so there are things that make you wonder, why am I doing this? Even the hours aside, just the nature of the job is a little odd, you know? If everyone was doing their job perfectly, you'd almost would not need an AD, you know? Every department would look at the call sheet, it would show up, the director would direct, and it would be fine. So it's really like you're, you're a glue that fills up cracks that seem to naturally occur in a production. I, I think for me with, with film, the, the most it was easy for me to get up every morning when I still really loved doing that because it, every single day was gonna be new and usually <laughs> on the particular movies, every day was going to be new and that made it exciting that you were making something that was more or less historical where people like your, your grandkids, people could go look at a movie you worked on from way back in the day, which then lead into a conversation. I always thought about it that way. But um, I think that Hollywood is full of, the only way you can really call it is thankless jobs. There's a lot of them if you're not in front of the camera person or needing the glory. And you have to really find that, that, that thing, that element to it that really gets you out of bed and gets you fired up. Yeah, it is sort of the attraction to the carny lifestyle. You know, people that can't sit at a desk for any mm -hmm. length of time. The, I, there's an appeal to being in a different place day after day. And you're either a person that likes, you know, your desk with the, the coffee cup here and the pens over there. Or you're a person that like, I have to see new things in front of me. I have to experience new things. And so from that standpoint, it's good. But, you know, it'll wear you down over time. You know, there are not, it'll age you fast. So it's a choice that you make. There are aspects of Bonneville that were absolutely some of the best things that happened in my career and in my life. Like some of my best memories happen on Bonneville. Uh, unfortunately, some of the most arduous things happen on Bonneville as well. Now, interesting enough for this podcast, the arduous things happen above the line. <laughs> um, and, and because everything below the line, uh, no joke, th those are some of the best memories of my life. The crew that we worked with, we had the Allens in the electrical department. We mentioned Haley, uh, Seppie, uh, Kristen Ludwig, um, who was our script supervisor, Curtis Burr, who was an AC, um, Paulie Meehan, uh, like I said before, uh, Dolly Grip, Danny Delgado, who comes across, across as one of the gruffest people you ever meet. He's really just a big teddy bear. He was our gaffer. Uh, Mitch Stelling, he and I still stay in touch on Facebook to this day. He's our key grip. Uh, you know, I made legitimate friends 
with a lot of the below the line crew. I mean, we're still, Eric and I still occasionally shoot, shoot a message back and forth. And um, I get pictures of his family uh, from the tower in Chicago and uh, Skid, you and I kind of like, we, you know, we, we, we don't talk all the time, but we still, we stay in touch still. We have an idea of what's going on in each other's lives. And I could say that about a number of people from Bonneville. And as Eric touched on, being in a film crew is very much a carny kind of lifestyle or summer camp kind of lifestyle where you have the intention of staying in touch and the intention of being friends with people. And a lot of times it fades out. Um, it's the breakfast club thing. Monday comes and you're, you're back in whatever it is. Um, but, uh, you know, on Bonneville, a lot of those relationships still stuck. And they're, they're, like I said, they're some of the best things that have happened to me, not just in film, but just to, like in my life, I've met great people because of Bonneville and, and especially below the line people on Bonneville. Well, revisiting this has been a ton of fun, guys, because if there's anything I do miss about Hollywood, it is catching up with the folks and revisiting these sets. Thanks so much, guys, for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. And that concludes our Bonneville discussion. Special thanks to long-term listeners who have come back for the second season. And if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Hope you enjoyed the episode. First, a quick note about the schedule. For season two, I'm planning to publish 10 episodes with a release every other week. Two weeks between podcasts will give me a little more time to market each episode individually and reach new listeners. You can help with that as well, of course, so if you've got a minute and are so inclined, please consider leaving us five stars and a comment on iTunes. I post photos and other supplemental materials on our Facebook community page. That's at Podcast Below the Line. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. On both of those platforms, we're at Pod Below the Line. And I'm always interested in your feedback. My email address is skid, S-K-I-D, at below the line, one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music. During the off-season, he updated it to smooth out some hiccups that I never noticed. And he also modified the outro, so I'm not rushing through my closing remarks. And of course, thanks to John Wan for our sharp-looking logo. If you're also a fan, consider some merch. You can pick up t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Next episode, I'm meeting with a founder, a trainer, and a graduate of an LA-based program called PA Bootcamp. We talk about starting out in the film industry as an on-site production assistant. We've all got our stories. We'll see you in two weeks. One thing I'd say I encourage you to do because I listen to a lot of podcasts. I always enjoy longer podcasts and shorter ones because if I'm already in it, I'm already an hour deep. I could listen to another hour of it. So, Morgan, you're the only person who's <laughs> ever made that ask. But that's that crazy. Said, that being said, that, you, uh, when <laughs> generally I don't throw out stories because of time. Generally, some stories don't work because of audio or become repetitive or somebody says something that I just don't want to stand behind. So, uh, <laughs> okay, uh, fair enough. We'll fair enough. If I feel I'm going to pull something that you like on your own, I'll just send you a little clip. No, that's not a mean. <laughs> not, I'm not editorial or anything. <laughs>